0: And welcome to the Plan a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim.
1: And I'm Hal Roster. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture.
0: The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planning and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits.
1: So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us.
0: We are proud to announce that the Planet Trillion Trees podcast has received a silver medal award for a podcast series through Garden Communicators International. We thank Garden Communicators for the recognition. This podcast is being recorded on August 2, 2022. Michael Dunn is an innovative urban forest manager and consulting arborist with a passion for progressive problem-solving of environmental issues, and a vision for a sustainable future in the designed urban environment. He is eager to collaborate with community and borough planners and stakeholders to manage and optimize the urban forest infrastructure as a shared and valuable asset. Michael is able to quantify and incorporate the current and future tree canopy into long-term strategic decision-making. He is an experienced leader poised to drive positive and productive community outreach. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Michael. We're delighted that we could have you back on our show to talk about trees, everything trees.
1: Thanks for having me, guys. We had a very animated discussion a couple weeks ago, Michael. I don't even remember what we were talking about other than I felt like all the boxes were being checked in terms of You being an extremely progressive arborist, kind of seeing the big picture. My first question to you is a little on the long side, but you won't mind because I'm also going to read the core values of your company, Brandywine Urban Forest Consulting. You state on the website, trees are vital infrastructure for the built environment. In fact, they're the only urban infrastructure that improves in value and service as it ages. The incorporation of green-slash-blue infrastructure into the built environment is critical to our success as a society. And then finally, trees are a key component of the effort to curb climate change. You call yourself an arborist, there isn't a single mention here of pruning. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So could you walk us through this a little bit and share any additional thoughts, particularly in regard to the services that you provide, well, that all was kind of after years of uh,
2: stealing about things. So I do think there's a growing separation of um, urban forestry versus the you know active arboriculture as far as the practice. So the practice of arboriculture is so important, and the percentage of people doing it, you know, just doing it the right way, are pretty minimal. But Urban forestry itself encompasses so much more than just the practice of arboriculture. It's only one element of urban forestry. So as I've kind of progressed through this in my career, I've really found that we have to integrate, you know, a planning infrastructure. So I really got interested in geodesign, urban planning, all the way back from Ian McCard, um, how he looked at bigger picture issues, to uh, Steiner from UPenn, to Steinowitz from Harvard, and how they look at these processes and bigger picture. And tried to incorporate that into our practice of green infrastructure and urban forest management. So Steinwitz has a pretty robust geodesign methodology that's 14 parts. I always like to simplify things. I think you need a grand statement and then you need a really simple approach that even um, an arborist like myself can understand. So, And we broke that down to assess, analyze, and act. So our practice is building to those three elements. Most of the time we're doing assessments and analyzing. And unfortunately, we don't get to act as much as we would like to. But the action side is the hardest to facilitate. A lot of people have these assessments. They have the reports and then they just sit on someone's desk. We can't force them to spend the money, but we will spend the money when it comes time to do the right thing. So we are a consulting practice, but we also do some action items. We uh, provide expert witness. We do uh, tree appraisals for tree loss. And we manage entire urban forests, including Westchester, Phoenixville, and we act as uh, expert witnesses for townships and municipalities. And we get involved with green infrastructure management for um, homeowner associations. We do green master plans. Most of what we do is is not very hands-on, but over the last few years, we've really gotten more interested in uh, tree preservation during construction. We spend oodles of time writing specifications, and then we hand it off to somebody else. And it's always, not always, but oftentimes it was an afterthought. So if nobody's going to do it right, we said, why don't we just do it ourselves? Because nobody's going to care as much as we do. So that's something we've uh, gotten interested in and we've been doing quite frequently. And then as we've kind of progressed into the field operations, we've also gotten into uh, ecological uh, restoration projects where a lot of planning goes into these things and then the outcomes aren't always as desired. So sometimes with somebody that has a real academic background, they They have this well-thought-out process, but the reality of how things are funded, I think we need to incorporate some of the thought into the actual doing. So we've kind of expedited some of the ecological restoration projects out there in areas that are usually ignored. So people's backyards, riparian buffers that might only exist on one or two small properties uh, that's below municipal scale. and So it's kind of a good niche for us.
1: And you mentioned two communities. So for our worldwide audience, uh, just to give a little context, Phoenixville, Westchester are both in Chester County. And why don't you describe it for us a little bit more? I understand that it has old uh, towns along with a rapidly changing suburban landscape that was largely agricultural. Am I right?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, Chester County features prominently in big landscape ideology through time so it was one of the uh, first settled regions you know west of philadelphia Westchester um is about 30 miles west of the city and it's the county seat of chester county but the namesake of our company the brandywine river runs through chester county there's two branches still to this day is a combination of uh it's a very scenic area with uh, rolling farmlands that probably scenic because of some of the wealth that's been here for generations but also, because there's been a, a large agricultural base, which is kind of slowly over time turned more to a suburbanization process. But when we look at some of the landforms, Chester County, interestingly enough, was the epicenter of cotton production in the 1800s. So six of the largest mills that produced cotton from the South prior to the Civil War were in Chester County along the Brandywine River's. That actually altered forever the course of these streams and rivers, um, kind of created an excess of sediment flow that has contributed to uh, some of our current flooding issues. And then post-war America, with the boom of uh, industrialization, the uh, increase of impervious spaces pushed all this water into ever-narrowing regions. And our forests have also been pushed into these narrow bands because almost to the nth degree, before they killed everything, you know, the 1970s, the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act, you know, that's all we had left was these narrow bands of, of rivers and, and forests that were fragmentary. So um, since that time, I feel like we've reclaimed some of that, but we still um, are working You know towards pushing those forests more into, our, into the built environment as much as possible. So, But uh, Chester County is, has some role characteristics and also has the city of Coatesville. It's the only city in Chester County. Westchester has the complexity of a city with the governance of a borough which has its benefits, actually. So you see a lot less ebb and flow of political tides when you have a borough. They have a weak mayor system. So if there's a new mayor elected, you're all of a sudden have a new cabinet, and then they just change policy overnight. So it's borough uh, council members are removed through elections, and you might only have you know, one person gone, and then the, the mission still continues. So it's, I think it's a little more effective governance strategy um, on the local scale to kind of maintain uh, longevity for, for programs. So it's a lot less ebb and flow. I know the city of Reading had an urban forester. New mayor was elected. It wasn't a priority anymore. That department got hacked. That was, you know, overnight. Mm-hmm. And that's another reason why we started this company was Pennsylvania has some pension issues. So a lot of the urban forestry positions were not being filled or were being vacated and not replaced. I think a consulting basis can cover most communities' needs for urban forestry and not really um, take up too much taxpayer dollars for the long term. So when you have to pay someone's benefits and pension, I'm not saying that this is the best solution. I'm just saying this is the reality of it. I think the position needs to be filled in a lot of towns.
0: Yeah. I I wanted to point out to our listeners that uh, Chester County is, if, if you've never been to Chester County, you should go to Chester County because it has some of the most beautiful streamside trails that you can take to walk or to ride Uh, bicycles, uh, especially a lot of cyclists go there because it's so beautiful to travel through. But we also have um, Longwood Gardens there, which is is an epicenter. And I I know I work there, but it's a critical place for the population to see gardens uh, and greenhouses and maybe a garden that they had never seen before. And those kind of things really make a community not only viable, but effervescent. I think the work that you're doing in Chester County in particular has really helped to broaden what people were not aware of before, like tree preservation, like the idea of the construction zones around trees, because most trees get killed during construction if you don't have a safe zone around it. And I think that the work that you're doing there is just incredible. And to be able to be entrenched within a community and to actually help guide them to make the right decisions about their trees is paramount as we move forward. As as you said earlier, that trees increase in value. So it's, it's a value that increases over time. And most people don't ever think of it that way.
2: We find most of the communities have some sort of standard, but um, it's usually based on some other precedent. And most communities will have a replacement stocking for development. So the idea was to prohibit development based on the cost to replace tree loss. Unfortunately, in Pennsylvania, like most of the U.S., landowner rights are paramount in the Constitution. Land ownership rights have been part of the age of enlightenment and are ingrained in the Constitution. So you only have so much control over a situation during the development phase. But during the development phase, you have the most control you will ever have on private property. So I found that a lot of these replacement stocking schedules are, say, like, you remove a 30-inch tree, you have to replace with three 3-inch three trees, which is some arbitrary number. But the ecological benefit of a 30-inch tree compared to three 3-inch three trees is about probably four to 5,000% higher. So we're looking at new models now. What if we actually make them replace pound for pound the ecological loss, which we can now quantify using uh, iTree and other data sets? And um, it, that actually might preclude people from irresponsible development for once. Uh, they might make them at least have to replace that loss. and You're not going to be able to replant the number of trees to accommodate that loss, but on a bigger picture, from an environmental perspective, you might have to put that money into a fund that would fund green blue infrastructure development, or you might have to, you know, you know, we don't need giant parking lots of impervious. We could, you know, dedicate additional funding to turning parking lots into pervious space that have pervious pores, or there's all these gravel bed installations. Now they're, Fantastic for having like stormwater precedents, like who's done what? And you can kind of push the law forward step-by-step step with that following current precedent. We have a unique community in Westchester. We have a university ingrained in ingrained in the town and we've created what we call the Living Laboratory now. So we have students engaged in these projects. We're actually giving them RFPs to respond to and they're creating reports based on data they collect in the field. And you know what we're asking our public leaders, like we should be at the vanguard. Why aren't we at the vanguard? who cares what somebody else is doing? So it's been um, an interesting concept. And so these models of replacement based on ecological value, I think are going to be more prevalent in the future. And California is pretty much setting the trend. um, So carbon offset taxing through forest protection is applying economic value to uh, ecological value. It's not very romantic. And during Arbor Day this year, I had a little bit of a tiff with one of the guys on the Shade Tree Commission. He likes the idea of the traditional Arbor Day of... um, we were setting poetry about trees, and I think we need to uh, somewhat demystify the impacts of trees on our, on our life, and we need hard baseball card stats that are science-driven, that really show there's no mysticism to this. This is, this is hard fact. This is what's contributing and what this means to our, uh, our bottom line. So we put dollars and cents on something. It, I don't think it uh, really endears certain people, but the people that need to hear that, I think it might, so...
0: you know it all started to change in the 1980s with Ulrich and his report about the tree being outside the hospital window making the person leave earlier because they had the perception of better health because that tree was outside the window as soon as you had that that you could actually put a figure on two days or a day what's the cost of a hospital stay and if you can reduce it by a day or two then all of a sudden you started calculating and and you're right, it's it's if you can calculate something and put it into monetary terms, you go much further in our governments and in our private sector because people realize that there's something there that's of value.
2: The psychological impact, Teresa, I mean, that was like you had said in the eighties really came to prevalence. But since that time, I mean the combination of psychological and economic impacts combined there was a study done on market districts and market districts that had tree lined streets. People tend to linger longer. And because they linger longer, they spend more money. They're not miserable by the end of the day. So maybe they go out to dinner at the end of that day. So it's it all ties in. So
0: Yeah. And that made a big effect on our main street manager program back in the nineties. I, mm-hmm. I remember that because I was, I was part of that whole thing. And, yeah. um, you know, lining the streets with trees when you had a mile long Corridor with no trees at all, and then you start putting trees, all of a sudden, people want to have businesses there because it looks good, because it feels good, because it's shady, because there's a place to walk. And like you say, linger longer. Mm -hmm. People are going to linger longer when there's a shady spot.
2: Yeah, the the communities that have invested in street trees, you can tell the difference. Not going to name any names, but there are some communities in Chester County that have no protection of trees in the right of way. And they leave it up to individuals to deal with that, individual owners. And because of that, they have no the right away at all because there's no protection. So there's always a constant thing. Well, if, if no one's going to enforce this standard, then what's the point of having it? But if you don't have ordinance in place, then it'll never be enforced. It's kind of a catch-22,
1: but I think you need strong enforcement. But also getting the ordinance in place, even if there's no enforcement, is still a step in the right direction. So... We started the show, uh, Michael, and reviewed your firm's core values, blue infrastructure. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing with some of your work with stormwater management? I am learning on the fly, and I should be further along as an arborist, but talk about what your firm has done with stormwater management. It's, It's impressive that you have been able to incorporate that into your mission.
2: I think um, anytime you can connect green and blue infrastructure, um, the the available funding is, uh, is enhanced. MS4 laws in Pennsylvania have been around for a few, maybe two decades max, which are basically stormwater management standards that have been released by the state of Pennsylvania, and municipalities are now required to adhere to them. And how they get there depends on a few issues. Some communities are enacting a stream protection fee, which you basically pay based on what you put into the system. So if you own a Kmart and you have eight football fields of concrete, then you pay a lot more than if you own a one-acre property that has, you know, a driveway and a house on it. So the less impervious you have, the less you pay. And that money has to be allocated to stormwater infrastructure, which includes trees. So trees are the living component. Vegetation is the living component of stormwater management. And the impact of stormwater is honestly... We barely know anything right now. We know what the roots are doing, but one thing that we haven't really been able to research in this region is the intercept ratio. That is the amount of water that goes into the canopy during a rain event that never actually hits the ground at all because the sun comes out, then it evaporates. So areas of the world like Australia where you have monsoonal events, they can study that a lot you know, closer, but here where we don't know what's happening day to day, they might say it's going to be completely sunny. And then all of a sudden we have a storm or we might have a storm that never materializes. It's it's a little harder to study that, but trees are part of the urban forest, but also, you know, our riparian zones that are in urban environments. So streams, um, and the stormwater infrastructure pretty much for the last 50 years has been designed to get water to the streams as fast as possible. So we want to slow that process down because the more water that's going into the streams, the higher the velocity, it means the more bank instability and the more potential for flooding. So as we've increased urbanization, we've increased impervious by thousands of percentiles. And all that water just goes right. It's been designed to go right into the streams as fast as possible to get it out of the human habitated areas. So keeping as much water on site really is part of urban forestry. So we want to plant trees that will you know, help us with stormwater reduction, we want to Increase the amount of rain garden infrastructure, and we want to increase uh, floodplain restoration where possible. A lot of these streams historically would have a hundred yard wide floodplain, so there wasn't really a channel; it's just a, a wetland that had a channel that would meander through time. But well, now we put that into a ten yard spot, and then because of that, we increase bank instability. So I think government should be actively seeking to purchase properties within these regions, and God forbid, we actually take something out and restore it back to nature there's this perception that these vacant lots are some sort of monstrosity and eyesore. But honestly, I find a little bit of beauty in the uh, degradation of these past, uh, you know, old buildings. And as they're reclaimed by nature, although it's not the ideal nature, it's a lot of Atlantis and uh, still grass and multi-floor rows. But we got to use those areas to really restore what we can and expand floodplains. So that blue infrastructure, it has higher levels of protection from the government and it has higher access to, uh, to grant funding potential. So really expanding upon that and incorporating that into the urban forest infrastructure, considering it you know, one in the same, trees are just a hydraulic element of part of that. And I think it's really important. And I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Some of the tree protection fee money can be directly attributed to planting trees. PHS has a grant that we've been utilizing in Westchester that provides $10,000 a year for tree planting in lower socioeconomic regions that are flood prone. So that's a lot of trees for a small community.
1: Yeah. And for my arborist brothers and sisters listening in, I think one takeaway I get, and I am, you know, a career arborist, kind of late life transitioning to more of the big picture urban forestry. But simple message, if you're taking the tree down, if you're grinding the stump, your job is not done until there's a little bit of canopy restoration. Otherwise, it is a contributor that open space becomes hard ground with accelerated accumulating runoff. Is that right? Yeah,
2: and I I would challenge any arborist listening, I mean... The need to uh, pay your bills with the short-term gain of removing a tree versus the long-term stability of maintaining trees on place and in sight, you know, it's it's better for your karma, number one. (laughs) But uh, I think there's a growing need for people that are, you know, above and beyond just removal people. Uh, We use any excuse to remove a tree to feed the machines that we rely on for this industry. But there's plenty of examples where a mitigation effort can keep a tree around for another 10, 20 years where you're still maintaining the integrity of the tree, the uh, benefits to the community and, and the aesthetic concern. So if you can manage a risk by not removing a tree to lower the risk, then by all means you should do that every time. Yeah. And I'll
1: add to that by saying when tree care personnel get a day off from not removing and being involved with the planting, you mentioned karma. I think it's restorative to them. It's a day where they aren't causing mayhem, burning up fossil fuels, uh, making a lot of noise, and hauling away biomass. And it's, they get to plant and be part of the restorative process. So one of our initiatives to kind of connect the university with the
2: surrounding environment here, uh, we actually started a nursery on the uh, Westchester University campus. There's no program at Westchester University for you know, urban forestry or Uh, Horticulture by any means, but they have ecology and they have uh, geography and planning. So I thought it was a really good opportunity to get these kids uh, dirty, kind of show them where plants come from. And we've been doing some light plant propagation with taking canes from, uh, you know, red sweet dogwoods and stuff like that. But even someone that's not in the industry, the satisfaction of being part of uh, replacement of trees on, you know, in landscapes and growing trees from seed or from propagation, I I think is really rewarding to a lot of these students. And a lot of my students this year got poison ivy which they have told me is uh, one of the most rewarding experiences and biggest learning experiences of their college experience. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so not wearing shorts for field work is a, is a good
1: lesson to learn. <laughs> so you can get a bad case of poison ivy and maybe bypass the uh, ayahuasca and psilocybin. Just <laughs> embrace the, the, the rash. Yeah.
0: I think it is empowering when people learn how to plant a tree. learn how to plant a tree, but also to propagate. I did a lot at the university, hundreds of trees at a time. And for students to actually see the process of from seed to a a blooming tree is pretty awe-inspiring. And it empowers people in a different way that wouldn't happen otherwise.
2: When I first took over in Westchester, I was really concerned with having all of our trees planted by professionals, being that I see a lot of mistakes. But I don't think anybody should ever fault somebody for trying, so kind of softened our stance we have a lot more volunteer planting and if we catch somebody planting a tree in they're right away you know it might not be the ideal tree for this scenario, but I can't like get mad at them if they're trying and um we've really softened our stance on on that type of stuff so some of the riparian buffers that we have uh, volunteer labor on they actually might be completely destroyed by engineering processes to uh what was grade at some point but just engaging people with the act of, you know, planting trees on the on the side of a river, I think is important, even if that project might not exist in 10 years. So it might be temporary, but it's probably more beneficial to engage with the community than uh than to always have the bigger picture in mind.
0: What kind of what size trees do you usually plant when you're doing riparian buffers? Are they small or are they large?
2: Most of the time it's like uh, container seedlings up to uh, up to lip size. So mm-hmm. we get most of our riparian buffer material off mocturero. They have a private root system that's a little deeper than some of the other stuff. And uh, I have my kids. um, Every year we do a few volunteer riparian planting projects at Stroud Preserve. We get the rotary to come out and we plant 100 trees in like an hour. And some of those people, that's the only time all year they'll get dirty. And I think that has a big impact, especially on the kids to get out. And and, uh, My kids probably plant like half of those by themselves, honestly. (laughs) But uh, they love it, so...
0: And we, right we used to do riparian work in our community and we had some of the very first grants in, given by the government and we would have hundreds of people come out to plant and, yeah. and we used Octorero too um, for small seedlings and, and whips and um, it made a huge difference on how people viewed the park with the stream, how they approached the park and the stream more appreciative of what was there. Before that, it didn't even phase them, you know? Also, I think it reduces vandalism. Yeah, When, when students are planting trees, younger people are planting trees, vandalism goes down on trees as well because they're part of the, the solution.
2: I, I would agree with that, actually. So the area between the bars in Westchester and the college campus has been like, Every Sunday morning I drive through and I'm like, oh my God, what happened? (laughs) So every time we plant a tree in the college side of town, I try to find a student because they're usually out on their porch. And I'm like, this is your tree now. You're responsible to keep an eye on this. Some people are like, who the hell is this guy? But honestly, we've had a lot of buy-in. Some of the students are like, oh, I'll definitely keep an eye out. We also have some student volunteer groups that have come out. I, I feel the more you engage with them, the more invested they will become, so.
0: Oh, and the hands-on learning, too, is, is a huge thing because most of the time you wind up sitting in classes and you can do something that's actually a benefit for your community. Yeah. Not only do you feel good about it, but it's a sense of ownership for yourself.
2: And uh, one thing we've noticed with the university last uh, since COVID is um, there's a, a really big disconnect between the community and the university now because some of the students, my intern, she had online classes for almost two years. All the things you do in Westchester that everybody knows about, she hasn't done any of them. We're trying to get her uh, involved with the community as much as possible. And uh, she's actually the caretaker for the nursery now and is much more invested. So, and uh, I hope once COVID kind of hopefully it goes away that we'll be back to having more of an
1: integration with, with students in the community.
0: That's really great.
1: You know, just to circle back, and we've touched on it a couple times, you know, the recent negotiations. We're recording this podcast in early August and there's been a little bit of movement with green infrastructure, Bill, which looks like a lot more trees are going to get planted, Mm -hmm. particularly in big cities. I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago as well. I just love asking people like yourself that, like I said at the beginning of the show, are so progressive, kind of that next generation of arborists. And I, I see in the back you have your board certified master arborist credential from the International Society of Arboriculture. Just wondering what your thoughts are on where we go as an industry. and What do arborists, you know, in the next 20, 30 years, what are we going to be doing that's different that maybe we're not doing today? I think the ISA has
2: ignored, at least locally, um, some of the trends and we're very focused on the practice of tree care, but we're not really focused on big picture items. So. I think the industry needs to pivot to be more of an environmental sector job than it is a considered more of a blue collar job. So the uh, further professionalization of the industry, uh, I think there needs to be a differential um, credential for urban forestry versus arboriculture. You know, there's a municipal society of um, urban foresters out there. There's the uh, ASCA consulting license. Um, I think ASCA is a little hung up on some old antiquated ideas too. And I think some of the, the better minds in the industry are ASCA members and I think there's a a new movement coming within that to stop arguing about what tree appraisal method is best, but rather how can we as arborists impact environmental um, change for the positive. I hope that there's a further professionalization of this industry that we attract. And also, I don't really think the universities are teaching what I consider modern urban forestry. Penn State has a forestry program that is still producing traditional foresters. I don't think that industry is going to exist. Um, it's highly mechanized. So they have an urban forestry certificate, but I mean, if I was Penn State, I don't know if uh, Mr. Uh, Dr. Elendorf is listening, but why not pivot towards urban forestry as the main focus? Because I think that's where the workforce is going to be needed. And traditional forestry, um, logging and in that is highly mechanized these days. And based on what I've seen from uh, the rates that urban forest or traditional forestry people are putting out and the pay scales, I don't think it's anywhere where anybody would want to be. So... I think the urban forestry needs to be integrated into other types of programs as well, not just forestry, but uh, planning and, and development, and geodesign, and landscape architecture. All need to uh, kind of take elements of urban forestry into their professions
0: mm-hmm. and horticulture too. I think horticulture. Yeah. I think horticulture definitely, you know, has a place within that context and in, in the planting process and in, the, yeah. in the planting. You know, making sure that they're the right trees for the right location, making sure that you have the right seed where it's being collected from, what's the provenance, making sure that, you know, the, the, um, the understory is just as flush as the upper story. Uh, all of those things need to be considered when, when you're talking about that. And you're right. We've interviewed quite a number of women from uh, the University of British Columbia, which is the epicenter for urban forestry right now, I've been following them.
2: They're great.
0: They are going gangbusters. Mm -hmm. And uh, a university like that, that is producing some of the top people in the world for urban forestry, tells you something that, that it is a profession that needs to expand and grow and be very viable within our communities. Because these jobs 20 years ago were really non-existent. Yeah. And... We need to keep that in mind and I think you're right with where your, your head is and your thoughts are. You're right on the money when it comes to having to train people to be urban foresters. But
2: I, I'm really surprised that we don't have a program in the Mid-Atlantic region that caters to urban forestry. So this is something I've always been thinking about um, that we don't have even an industrial level program that's training people to enter into the tree industry in Philadelphia I mean, one of the biggest tree markets in the world. Not even a junior college offers a program, not even a certificate to get work experience in this area. So I think that we need a four year bachelor's program and a, and, a, and a master's program, definitely, but just a community college that's getting kids interested in this industry would be vital. And that's my next, uh, my next lofty ambition is to start trying to work with universities to kind of push that somewhere. So.
0: And I, I think too that you know we we do have a good reputation globally for our tree tenders program through PHS. Yeah, their local training. They're not affiliated with the university, but maybe that's something that needs to happen down the line. And they do do a lot of hand and glove kind of work with Penn because I sit on the Penn tree uh, committee down at the university, and they do do a lot of tangential work with with the university. And I really believe that that's how things are going to start to develop for the programs you're talking about. Because, you know, if, if it doesn't happen, it's going to be forced upon everyone. So it might as well happen in a, in a pleasant way that we can actually control.
1: You know, to your point, Eva, you mentioned horticulture. And it's going to be interesting, the supply side of the tree planting equation, because Michael alluded to the local Chester County nursery, Octorero, they've been around a long time. They develop a great product, you know, owner-operator. But to have an abundance of the right kind of trees, properly grown and easily accessible by not just tree companies, but landscapers, you know, again, thinking about the, this money that is coming down the pike and will we have, you know, the right tree of the right size and caliper, properly grown. It's gonna be interesting to see how the nursery industry responds to all that. Yeah, and you know, we've been trying to increase diversity um, in most of our urban forest canopies. And it's
2: been an issue to get diverse trees. So we follow the 10, 20, 30 rule. We don't wanna see any more than 10% of one species, 20% of one genus, or 30% of one family. And you know, post-war America, we planted like five street trees. So just about all of those trees now are maxed out on soil volume, and they all have the same disease if they're in the oak family. Yeah. At the same time, not to fault Doug, but Doug Tallamy's book came out about oaks and how we should plant more oaks than anything else, which has you know some benefit. But every single community I service has over 20% of the canopy is in the Quercus genus. i'm Not saying don't plant oaks, but we need to diversify so we don't have you know the Emerald Ash Borer problem where we lose a certain percentage of our entire forest overnight. So.
0: I think you're right about that. I think you're right about that. And we don't have the yeah. diversity that we need moving forward. And all the ash that we did lose has left a huge gap within the context of our yeah. of our forests here in southeastern Pennsylvania. And you can just drive up and down and you see it along the riparian areas, especially where you, you see these massive stands of, of uh, ash that have of course they're a riparian plant too, but we need to we need to up our game.
2: I mean it's a good day to be a woodpecker for sure.
0: Yes, yeah. uh, it absolutely is. Or maybe even a honeybee. We were talking about our our former guest that we just interviewed was uh talking about the hollows of trees and how important they are for honeybees. That's actually a,
2: a management strategy we've employed on some of these riparian buffers is um, it's cheaper just to uh, top off the dead ash and leave the standing spars and create habitat trees then to remove the entire tree. So in some of those, we've been putting boxes on and we have some clients patiently waiting for a bird to arrive. But uh, so far, nobody's taken a residence. But there are alternative management strategies that do not involve wholesale removal of ash trees from sometimes the impact of getting in to remove a tree. If there's no real target for the tree to hit, then we might just let it decline naturally and become habitat. And then sometimes we manage that habitat just by leaving um, something that is not so tall that it will uh, fall and strike a target. So,
1: Yeah.
0: I think you're so right on that one. You're right on the money. Yeah.
1: Mike, Michael, um, uh, as usual, the time goes fast. And this is not on the list of questions that I submitted to you, but I want to throw it in your court. Is there anything you'd like to talk, talk to us about that maybe we, we missed today? Because I have a feeling you're a, a thinker. Well, anytime I get a chance to plug my uh, nonprofit. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, so in
2: 2020, um, we founded a nonprofit called the Goose Creek Alliance, which Goose Creek is part of the CRC watershed, the Crom Ridley and Chester Creek watershed. And it's the headwaters of the Chester Creek. It flows from Westchester down to Chester. So I think the CRC watersheds are probably the most chronically underfunded watersheds because they impact a, a more urban side of the environment. And we've been um, actively fundraising to raise money to restore some of the headwaters regions, which Goose Creek is um, heavily floodplanned and redlined. It's on just about every single um, indicator that the DCNR has on stream quality. Uh, it's, it's failing on just about every one. So... The Goose Creek Alliance is a coalition of environmental professionals and university professors that are actively seeking to build an alliance between townships that don't communicate with each other very well. Uh, As you know, streams don't end at township lines. They impact greater communities that are integrated. So rather than have one community having a project here and one one that doesn't really make sense over here, trying to integrate the approach to fix Goose Creek from stem to stern and then... Uh, restore the floodplain. So in order to do that, trying to fundraise around $50,000 to, uh, to fund a watershed action plan from a professional uh, engineering firm that specializes in floodplain restoration. And that's kind of the game plan to get to the next level of professionally engineered uh, floodplain restoration projects. So anybody that is interested in Goose Creek um, can search Goose Creek Alliance on, on the web and find us. So great. Right.
0: Well, just so you know that our our website, the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, mm-hmm. uh, will put your bio and your information along with your photo and all of the links that pertain to you. Awesome. So if anybody is listening, you can go to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast website and you'll find all the links for Michael when this comes out.
2: Yeah, probably the easiest way to find the site is to go to our um, brandywineforestsite.com and then under projects, there's a Goose Creek project that goes right to the website. I'm asking people to make donations as little as $1 if that's all they got. So we'll be having some events. We're actually working with a local brewery to uh, make a Goose Creek beer. If people can uh, get a little tipsy, And we raise money for the cause. I think that's a good way that uh, um, you get people drunk. They tend to spend more and more money. Yes, yes. And
1: Under the shade of a tree, of course. Of course. (laughs) Hey, I I have to ask. So Goose Creek empties out uh, at the low end of the county then. I'm a little fuzzy with my geography. Does that impact the town of Chester? Uh, Yes. So Goose Creek flows into Chester Creek
2: at the Delaware County, Chester County border or somewhere around there. And then uh, it flows past Wawa, Pennsylvania. So we're trying to connect to Wawa. I know they do a lot of nonprofit type work and get them involved with this as well. And then eventually it ends up in Chester. So,
0: Is that on the Delaware River Basin or is that in the Chesapeake Bay? Delaware. Delaware, So
2: that's one of our problems, actually. So if it was in the Chesapeake Bay, we would have $3 million by Friday. Right. Because the Chesapeake Bay Alliance... So in order to gather grant funding you have to really get multiple avenues of funding in in, in this part of the region so we have a socio-economic issue in that it impacts the lower socio-economic sides of Westchester, uh historic black communities and then also chester which is uh socio-economically deprived um and we have the environmental issue we have the stormwater issue we have this living laboratory with the university now uh we had a five-week intensive uh Rapid assessment class with the uh, ecology department at Westchester University. That they did a really nice project, and so we'll be posting all the student projects as they come to completion on the Goose Creek website, and our fundraising efforts will be monitored there as well. So,
0: are you connected with the Delaware Estuary?
2: Um, we're not. That's
0: yeah. one organization to look into. Yeah, we've been
2: closely working with CRC um, as our main focus because we are within their watershed, and we also don't want to step on their feet because they've been an existing organization. Their focus is more on kind of the public outreach side. Our focus is on really kind of uh, putting the microscope lens on a one problem at a time, um, and then coming up with an engineered solution that really uh, is big picture, um, multi-million dollar uh, projects that we're hoping to get grant funding for for um, pollution reduction credits that will generate revenue for the
1: communities that they exist in. So that's wonderful, hey, Michael. Do you ever get to take a breath and? Think about what your favorite tree is, and could you share with us what that tree might be? I'm like a six-year-old in that regard. My opinion changes just about
2: every day. But I uh
0: that's okay. What is it today?
2: Um well this morning my uh Gordlinia flowered, so (gasps) uh, yeah. Ex Gordlinia. And we had talked about that on the internet the other day, so today that's my favorite, but traditionally um I've been a big fan of the oak family, so. Uh, white oaks and burr oaks have always been two of my favorite, but Gordlinia is my favorite uh, right now because I've had one for a few years, and unlike my Franklinias, it's actually still alive. So,
0: <laughs> Oh, and just for our listeners, uh, uh, X gordlinia is a cross between Franklinia and Gordonia, which is a southern species, and, uh, and then you get the X gordlinia grandiflora.
2: If anybody's looking to um, plant one, I, the success rate we've had with those compared to the is um, pretty similar aesthetic, um, almost identical. It's a lot easier to keep alive. So nice, compact plant, elegant structure, flowers in
1: the in the late summer, which is a nice time to see flowers. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. What a great choice.
0: Well, thank you, Michael. Mm-hmm. Thank you, guys. We really appreciate you being on.
1: Appreciate your time.
0: Yep. And good luck with all your work that you're, you're doing. Good, good work. Thank you so
1: much.
0: Oh, you're welcome. Take care.
1: Have,
0: have a good one. Yep. Talk to you guys. Yep. You too. Yep. Bye-bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California.
1: Thank you.